This morning's scripture reading will begin with Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1, that's page 3 in the Pew Bible. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And then verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And then Genesis 3-12-13. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The servant deceived me, and I ate. And then Genesis 4, 9 through 10. Then then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It is good to have you this morning and encourage us that you're here and we want to be an encouragement to you. Houston, we have a problem. That along with beam me up Scotty is two of the most famous phrases that have been quoted from movies. And yet both of them are minor misquotes. And when we think about the Houston, we have a problem, it usually is said in a humorous situation to reveal the fact that there is some kind of problem, but yet when that was first said from Apollo 13, it was a life and death situation. It was a very, very serious time. When we think about the various Apollo missions from the 11th to the 17th, every one of them were to be lunar landings. All of them were, except for 13. You see, it was on that mission that there were three in the crew, Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert. They were well trained. They devoted their life. They looked forward to this mission. They actually were given on this mission a particular part of the moon that they were to land on and they were to explore and even bring back rocks that could be studied. Obviously, it was exciting for them. Well, pretty exciting. You see, 55 hours into the mission, they actually were somewhat bored. Everything in their mind was going so smoothly. They even talked about the fact that it's kind of boring right now. Even in Houston, they were talking about the fact that it's kind of boring right now. They were only 10 miles away from being 200,000 miles from Earth. They were over halfway to the moon. They did a 49-minute television program. It was during that television program that they talked with Earth, with Americans, about what it was like to feel weightless. They showed them around their spacecraft. And at the end of that television program, the benediction was this. Lovell said... This is the crew of Apollo 13 wishing everybody there a nice evening. And we're just about ready to close out our inspection of Aquarius and get back for a pleasant evening in Odyssey. Good night. Nine minutes later, there's an explosion in the number two oxygen tank. 
it causes the number one oxygen tank to fail. And from there, we have the famous words that we read or we hear. It's said so often in a misquote where Swaggart says, Okay, Houston, we've had a problem here. Lousman from Earth says, This is Houston. Say again, please. Then Lovell, who usually gets credit for this statement, but he was the second one to say it, says, Houston, we've had a problem. We had a main B bus under vote. Lousman says, Roger, main B under vote. And astronaut and scientists from Earth and from Houston began to see that there was a spray coming out of the side of the spacecraft. They realized that there was tragedy aboard. It appeared at first they would not have enough oxygen. They were going to lose power. It appeared they would not have enough water. They would not have enough electricity. Now, when we say power, we think of electricity. They're thinking about enough power to return to Earth. Would they remain in space to die? Would they even have oxygen to carry them a few days? In a short amount of time, they made a decision that to us today seems obvious. We've got to abort this mission. We will not be landing on the moon. Well, we're accustomed to driving automobiles. When you want to turn around and go home, you just put on the brakes, make a U-turn, and go back home. When you're propelling in space, it takes so much energy, so much power, which they didn't have much of, to stop and to turn around and to begin motion again to re-enter into uh, the Earth's horizon. They didn't have that kind of power. And so what normally would be a maneuver that would take months and months to plan and to experiment with, they literally made the decision within hours at Houston. They made the decision that they were going to change the trajectory, tra- trajectory and they were going to go in still around the moon, but go close enough to use the moon's gravity so that just at the right time they would give a burn and it would slingshot them using the moon's gravity back to earth. It was amazing. And it worked. And later, there was an interview, of course, many interviews about all of this. And there was one particular fact that kind of was overlooked. And one of the crewmen brought this up at this point in the interview. He said, you know, before we could give that burn, we had to have a proper alignment to earth. And we did not have a proper alignment. We were going to miss earth. Normally what we would do is we would look through our telescope and we would find a star. Our computers would align with that star and it would set the direction for us to go back into earth. But he said there was so much debris from the accident that we experienced. We could not tell the difference in a star and in the glittering debris that we called false stars all around us. This became a serious problem. It may sound simple now, But he says it was a genius at Houston who finally said, 
Why don't we use the sun? Well, see, it's larger than what you would normally use. You could still miss the earth using the sun. They decided they would use the top right-hand corner of the sun to set their direction. And that they did. And you know the rest of the story. They arrived back to earth, landing safely in the Pacific Ocean. They were very cold. They were very tired. They were very hungry. But they were alive. Now during this time... They had spent 100% of their time and energy on surviving and working through crisis after crisis after crisis. They literally had their lives saved by duct tape, cardboard, and plastic bag. There were so many things that they had to work through that it never dawned on them that all of America and really most of the world was watching. They were surprised when they finally made it back to Hawaii and found their families and even the President of the United States waiting on them in person. It's from there that movies have been made, books have been written, and great stories have been told. Why? Houston, we have had a problem. I could not help but think of this story when we were doing our daily Bible readings this past week. Genesis 1 and 2 sounds so perfect, doesn't it? In Genesis 1, we read about God. We read about creation. The six days that it took for Him to make all that He made for us, including chapter 2, that beautiful garden, where He placed man And then he tells us about the creation of woman, that that we are helpers to each other, and even introduces to us and to mankind the institution of marriage. And when we close the second chapter, they're living in what we would refer to as paradise on earth. Everything appears to be so perfect, except chapter 3. Houston... We've had a problem. The human race has had a problem. The serpent, he's subtle, more subtle than all the other creatures. And he enters into the garden. And he lies and he deceives. And he causes temptation. And what I would like for you to see as we begin this study this year throughout the scriptures is I'd like for you to see that the first three or four chapters of the Bible give us four great truths Oh, they give us a lot more than that. But this morning, I'd like for you to see, especially when we study the third chapter, we see within this chapter truths like there is temptation, there is sin, there is punishment for sin, and there is a Redeemer. You see, these first four chapters offer great paradoxes of life. It's in these four chapters that we look at man... And we look at the majesty of man. He's made after the image of God. We see the wretchedness of man. Man sins. We see the strength of man, that he has dominion over all the other creatures of the earth. But we see the weakness of man, that he is dependent upon God for everything. You see, the paradoxes are amazing. But yet it's also humbling. 
And yet it also gives all of us an anchor, if you will, to know who we are. We are people that if we do not overcome the problem that we have, we will not survive this mission. As serious and as diligent as that crew was on Apollo 13, that is how serious we must be. If they would have taken their situation lightly, they would have never survived. This morning, I urge you, as you read through the Scriptures this year, to realize that God is giving us a common thread, that it runs through the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And it's to say, look who I am. I'm the Creator. And look who you are. And I want to redeem you. Why do I need redemption? Because Houston, you have a problem. You have a problem with temptation and not always overcoming it. That brings sin. And sin brings a lot of pain and eventually destruction. And Jesus Christ came to this earth to bring us our salvation This morning, I'd like for you to look with me in Genesis, the third chapter. I'd like for us to look at some things about temptation, sin, punishment, and redemption out of this grand chapter of Genesis 3. What is so tempting about temptation? Do you see here in Genesis 3 and verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree, notice these three things. We see these are the three things that also Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew the fourth chapter just after his baptism when he's in the wilderness. We also see that this is also what's referred to in 1 John 2 that we'll look at in just a moment. He showed her, he showed her this tree. Now keep in mind when we look in James the first chapter and we look at temptation, sin, and death. It is presented in James 1 as conception, birth, and death. Temptation, sin, and death is conception, birth, and death. And so what is it that we need to learn about temptation? We learn from James 1 that temptation is when we have a desire in the heart to do something that's wrong and Satan presents the opportunity for us to do it. And so here, notice what was tempting her. Look at these three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh is the carnal, natural desires that we would have. They don't have to be carnal unless we use them in a carnal way. Here was a tree that of all the trees they were allowed to eat, God said to this tree of knowledge that's in the midst of the garden, do not eat of it. Satan deceived them by telling them that they would not surely die when God said, you will surely die. Temptation always comes with lies. And so now what is tempting? To the flesh, it looked like something that maybe when you're hungry, you look at a meal and you say, that would really be appetizing. That would fill me up. It was tempting to the flesh. It was also tempting to the eye. You know, just the other day, I know this is gross, but let's illustrate it. Just the other day, I was eating a Subway sandwich and I went by some roadkill at the same time. That wasn't appealing. I did not look at that at all and say, that looks good to eat. But you know what? Eve went to this tree And she looked at the tree and she said, this looks good. I believe it would be good to the flesh. I know it looks good to the eye. And then she said, it would make me wise. You see, it was the pride of life. Now that takes us to really the heart of all sin. 
what is it about temptation that really is alluring to us? We might not like to admit this, but what is really alluring to temptation is when we are tempted, we're battling with whether or not we're going to let God be God or whether or not we're going to become our own God. And that's what was so tempting in this situation and with us even still today. Notice in Genesis 3 and verse 4 there, in this temptation, the desire to be God, Satan said, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Paul says something real similar in Romans, the first chapter in 21, where he says, because they knew God, remember this is when they didn't glorify God and they were not grateful in their heart. And then you read down to 23, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. What did they do? from Genesis all throughout the Bible, and here we are in 2012, and we're still doing the same thing. We're tempted to be our own God. Not that we want to set a high standard of righteousness and and holiness like God does. It's not that we want to be that type of God. We want to have dominion over our own life. We want to fulfill the fleshly desires that we have. We want to look at something and think, oh, that's really good. And it doesn't matter what God has said about it. We are our own God. And we like to exalt ourselves. We want to be important. We want to be powerful. And the temptation is to become our own God. And we'll look at that more in just a moment. Now, when we think about, those are the things about temptation. But notice about sin. What is it? The word sin is used the first time in the Bible in Genesis, the fourth chapter. We had a brief reading of that just a few moments ago. Now, when we look at Cain and Abel, they were told what to bring to God in sacrifice. Now, we're not told what they're told, but they were told. And they were held accountable for what they were told. Abel brought what God requested and what God commanded. Cain did not bring what God commanded. And God did not accept Cain's offering nor did he accept Cain. Now, this makes him very jealous of Abel. Apparently, he's either in a tent, or God chooses to use that symbolism as he talks to him here in Genesis, the fourth chapter, verse 6 and 7. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Isn't that interesting that he sinned in order to be his own God, in order to fulfill himself, but yet now his countenance has fallen. See the deceptiveness of sin? It never brings us what we think that it's going to bring. And he says, God says to him, if you do not, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Another translation of the Hebrew there is, sin lies at the door the flap of the tent. In other words, where where you'd go in and out of the tent, he's saying, sin's lying right there. God knew his jealousy and God knows the heart of man. What did God know? God knew that he was on his way to kill his brother. And so God tries to stop him. Now keep in mind, God will never force you and I to do wrong. He'll never force us to do right. And so he has this conversation urging Cain to repent urging him to turn his life around. Don't you know, he doesn't use the word forgive, but that's what he's implying. Don't you know, I will forgive you. Don't you know, you still have an opportunity to turn your life around and do right. But if you don't, and you stay on this path, more sin is lying at the door. Listen, sin destroys us like an enemy that is waiting to take advantage of us. 
God realized that and wanted Cain to realize that. And Cain didn't realize that until after he'd killed his brother. Sin, although it's not mentioned by the word sin in Genesis the third chapter, we know that sin is taking place in Genesis the third chapter. You remember when God comes to Adam in Genesis 3 and 17, and this is back again to what we were saying, the temptation while ago. We want to become God. What is sin? Sin is a failure to acknowledge God as God. And so when God comes to confront Adam and Eve about their sin, I'd like for you to notice how he begins this confrontation. In Genesis 3 and 17, Adam, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you. Do you hear what God's saying there? Adam, you stopped allowing me to be God. You listened to your wife with greater authority than you listened to me. You should have allowed me to remain God in your life. It's so easy. It's so easy for us, and if you were here in our devotional time Wednesday night, we talked about Romans, the first chapter, in verse 24, 25, 26, and 27. In three of those verses, we read the word change or exchange three times. The first time they exchanged, or they changed God into the likeness of man. The next time, they exchanged truth into a lie. And the third time, they exchanged their behavior from righteousness to that which was ungodly or unnatural. Listen, those are the patterns that we still always follow today. We change our God and then we exchange the truth and then it changes our actions. And so here, Adam is being held accountable. God is saying to him, son, you stopped allowing me to be God. And then you exchanged the truth. I told you the truth, but you bought the lie of Satan. And now what did that do? It affected your behavior. Before, when you were allowing me to be God and you were listening to the truth, you didn't eat of that fruit of that tree. But when you stopped allowing me to be God and when then you stopped listening to truth and then you did what you were not supposed to do. Friends, I don't know if I'm safe to say this, but I'd go out on a limb to say a lot of us, we don't admit that we have pride, but we have just enough pride that we won't let God be God in our life. Listen, a lot of time our struggle is not with and you list three sins that you're struggling with, the reason we're struggling with those sins is because we're not letting God be God. That's the underlying foundation of most sin. So that's the first place God starts with Adam. The first place wasn't. Let's talk about the fruit. The first place is, why did you stop allowing me to be God and start listening to other people? And so what was the result? In Genesis 3 and 10, I'd like for you to notice what Adam did, and this is what a lot of us do. I heard your voice in the garden, Adam says, talking to God, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Oh, we may not run and hide behind a bush somewhere, behind a tree, or in a closet somewhere, but how many of us hide from the responsibility that we have to own up to our sin? We have a hard time repenting of sin sometimes because we won't own up to sin. And yet Hebrews 4 and 13, we need to be humbled. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes 
of to him to whom we must give an account. Do you believe that? Are you responsible? You know the society we live in loves to pass the blame. It's not my fault. We're not the first society to do that. As a matter of fact, the first society that ever existed did that. Look here in Genesis, the third chapter. God comes up to Adam and he asks him about the problem. And what does he say? He blames two people. He says, God, it was your fault. You gave me woman. And then it's woman's fault. And then he looks to woman in verse 13. And he says, it was the serpent's fault. And then in the next verse, he looks to the serpent. And the poor serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. But in Genesis, the third chapter, we see the fact that the blame game is literally as old as mankind. Please get this. It was wrong then, and it's wrong now. We don't play part B, the blame game, until we first play part A. I'm not responsible. We are responsible. It's not your parents' fault that you're a sinner. It's not your work's fault that you're a sinner. It's not your past fault that you're still sinning today. What excuse have you been making? And today, will you look at literally the beginning of the Bible and realize, I'll never get better until I take responsibility for my actions and stop blaming everyone and everything else. Why? Why is it important? It's important because along with sin comes punishment. There are consequences. I'd like for you to quickly look at Genesis, the third chapter, and verse 16. Notice the consequences to woman that their sorrow was going to be multiplied in childbearing. In other words, apparently there was some level of pain before woman's sin, but it was going to be greatly increased after the sin of woman. And also that man would rule over her. And then we see what God said to man in Genesis 3 and 17. We see that now he's going to make a living with, with the, the ground as he was before. Even before sin was keeping the garden in Genesis 2 and 15. But now the pain was going to be increased because now he would fight thorns and thistles and by the sweat of his brow. But notice how verse 19 ends. It's also to dust you shall return. When we look at the next slide, we see the reminder that Genesis 3 and 3, that sin brought death. And we hear Hebrews 9 and 27, and it is appointed unto man once to die. Did you get that? It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. When we sin, we die spiritually, separation from God. But because of sin, man was driven away from his home in the garden. A place where while he was in the garden, what did he have advantage of? There was a tree that he was told he could not eat of. Do you remember what that tree was? The tree of life. But once he was driven away from the garden, he no longer had access to the tree of life. Now 
man would die. But you know what God wants? He wants you and the tree of life to be reunited. In heaven, not only do we have the reunion with the Godhead, but we have the reunion with the tree of life. You see, there is redemption. In Genesis, the third chapter, we see what was, seen, was being said to Satan. And verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now notice how the seed here is spoken of individually. In other words, he's not talking about the human race here, even though there are some scholars that believe that. I, I do not believe that that's what's being spoken of here. That, that one, one way to view this is that the human race is being spoken of here, and the human race will have dominion over the beast and, and over all the animals. We know from this chapter, and we know from after the flood, that that is true, that humans will have dominion over animals. But I don't believe that's the spiritual message that's being spoken of here when the seed is referred to as a single seed. It's Mary's seed. Man brought sin to the world and it was woman who brought the Savior that was the answer to sin. And notice what that single seed is going to be. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What did Satan do to Jesus? Compared to what Jesus did to Satan, all the cross was was a bruise on the hill. Because you see, Jesus was resurrected. He's alive. He's well. He's fine. But what about Satan? Brethren, the day Jesus was resurrected, that was the final blow of the heel of Jesus Christ on the head of Satan. He came out of that grave to stomp the head of Satan. Listen, the victory has already been won. You want to talk about the dilemma of temptation, sin, and punishment? And if we stopped there, there would be no help or no hope in the Scriptures. But the thread that comes all the way through the Scriptures is to show us redemption. The book of Revelation, although sometimes difficult to understand, is easy to state what the theme is. The theme of the book of Revelation is the victory has already been won. Jesus Christ has won. The heel of Christ has stomped the head of Satan. And the Bible is written so you and I can understand how important it is to choose the right side. This morning, will you choose the side that allows Christ and the Father and the Spirit to remain God in your life? Or will you choose the side that allows the temptation to overcome you and the pride of life and the lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes to rule? I'd like to close 
by reading to you three passages. I just want to read them. I want you to think about what we studied this morning and see the blessing of Christ in future weeks. We'll study this more. Romans 6 and 23. The wages, the payment of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are God's. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the great resurrection chapter. For as in Adam all die, but even so in Christ shall all be made alive. We have a command center. And it's not in Houston. God, we have a problem. And He answered that problem. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. If you're in the accountable age here, we've all experienced the problem. Let's make sure we leave here having experienced the solution. I want to go home. One of the astronauts said, there was a lot of failure on our mission, but it wasn't a failed mission because we made it home alive. I've got a lot of failure on my mission in life, but I don't want it to be a failed mission. And only by the grace of God will you and I make it home alive. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.